Rocky Peak. Michael here. It is so good to be with you again. Uh, if, you, if we've not met yet, my, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church at Rocky Peak. And so excited to be looking forward to spending this service uh, with you. So I hope you've uh, already downloaded your message note sheet. You're ready to go. You're definitely going to need that today. Uh, but before we jump in, I have a very important announcement, sort of update on our strategy plan moving forward, kind of next step in this COVID crisis for us as a church. So, so here's a scoop. If you were here about a month ago, it was just a little month, I know it seems like a year ago, but it was just over a month ago that I, I brought a message, I gave a message here in the weekend called Christ, the Church, and COVID. And, and I outlined kind of five basic principles that would be kind of uh, guiding us through as we navigate this crisis as we move into the future. And so if you remember at that time when I gave that message, that at that time the state of California had not allowed churches to begin to meet yet. But the very next week, uh, they, opened the, they, they opened the door for that, and we uh, were able to start, uh, they said we were able to start meeting, but on a very limited basis. And so what they said is that you can, you can meet, but you can only have like 25% capacity of the room or 100 people or less, uh, whichever is greater. So for that means in this large worship center, only 100 people. Of course, on top of that, the 100 people have to be socially distanced, masked, and so on. Um, and and that, they also said you got no separate kids ministry. If you want to have kids as part of that 100, that's up to you, but no separate kids ministry. So since that time, uh, behind the scenes, we've been working hard. We've been praying, seeking God's direction. We've been researching uh, both other churches in the area, churches around the nation, what are doing, been researching legally what our options are. Uh, and we've been working really hard to prepare for the day when the Lord says, hey, now's the time for you to reopen. And so what I want to share with you is that in just in, in the next week or two, I will be sending a video with you with, with our plans. We feel like a plan is beginning to come together. We're very excited about that. Not quite ready to announce, but in the next week or two, uh, I'll be sending you a long video with our plans for the future. So uh, this will include both launching some home churches like we've talked about, kind of church in the home where you gather on the weekend at one of our, uh, for one of our online uh, services together with maybe fans, family, friends, life group, or whatever, but also that, that we would begin to open at a limited basis uh, some, uh, some of our weekend services here on our campus. So I just wanted to give you uh, an up-to-date uh, kind of uh, uh, update on that. Uh, that'll be probably kicking off uh, later in July, but uh, in the next week or two, I'll be sending you uh, a video uh, bringing you up to speed. So I just really appreciate your prayers for that as we continue uh, to seek God and just kind of his vision for our church as we together just want to listen and follow. So God bless you so much. Thank you for your prayers, support during this very challenging time. We're looking really forward into moving into kind of this next phase, phase two of our response to how do we be the church of Jesus as we move forward in this, uh, this time of crisis. So uh, with that, we're going to change, change gears here. We're going to be going into our time of teaching. So again, if you haven't uh, downloaded the, the weekend uh, teaching, the message note sheet, encourage you to do that. You'll definitely need it today. And so if you're ready to go, uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Let's, uh, let's pray together. 
So Father, we're so thankful to be here and we're thankful that you are king over our church and even as we talk about the future and the plans you have, we thank you that you've been walking with us every step of the way, making the next step clear and we just thank you that you will continue to lead us every step of the way. Follow the cloud by day, the fire by night. Uh, as you take us through this kind of wilderness season, uh, teaching us, disciplining us as a father and son uh, to teach, uh, to, to listen, to learn how to listen and follow you to hang on your words as you taught Israel in the wilderness that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so today, as we continue this series on spiritual warfare, God, we want to be a church that hangs on your word. We pray that you would speak today by the power of your spirit, whether we're sitting at home at a kitchen table, whether we're in a, a bedroom or a living room, whether you've got a big screen TV or we're watching on a phone, that wherever we are, uh, whether it's here locally, whether it's across the states or around the world, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what he alone can do, open our eyes to spiritual truth, and today in particular to the reality, the unseen realm, and the power that we have as followers of Jesus. And we pray this in your name, and everyone said, amen. Men. Well, our story starts today in a major city, crowded city. The streets are bustling. This is an international, multicultural, major city on the seacoast. And he'll never forget this day. He'll never forget where he was standing, what he was doing when he heard the news. And it wasn't long before a crowd began to gather and what was amazing him was that not only was the crowd gathering, but that many were emerging from the crowd carrying some very expensive, in some cases, very ancient writings, documents, kind of worth their weight in gold. And as they began to emerge from the crowds, there was one man who started it off. He threw it down. He threw his, his literature down in the middle of the street. And then another followed. And pretty soon, one after another, we're throwing these priceless documents down. This pile was growing. And he was wondering what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it happened. From the crowd, someone came, stepped forward, brought the fire, and started and lit the bottom of the, of the pile that had piled so high. And at first, it didn't really take but he kept working on it and soon a, a wind came, a blast of air and that fire began to catch and the pile began to burn and pretty soon it was going higher and higher and the crowd that had gathered that was so large was now backing up from the heat. And as the flames crackled, as the wind blew, as the flames ascended, as the smoke went up, there were many in the crowd who were cheering and there are others that were horrified at what they were witnessing and wondering what this would mean, not only for these documents, but for their city. Well, today we are continuing uh, this journey, this new series that we started last week called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. And if you're brand new, we're so glad you're here with us. And uh, this series is, is obviously, as it's in the title, it's a series on spiritual warfare. And one of the lessons that we've learned already in our short journey is that 
if you're a follower of Jesus, when we become a follower of Jesus, that, that spiritual warfare is not an occasional event that happens in the Christian life. It's not a sidebar experience. And it goes to the heart and the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, if you were here last weekend, we started this series by taking a look at the life and ministry of Jesus and the role that spiritual warfare played in his life. And at the end of that, uh, the end of the message, I took us to a very famous passage of scripture. In fact, it's the, the core, the key passage for this entire series. It's in the letter to the Ephesians from the Apostle Paul in chapter six. And it's there in your note sheet, and I wanna start with it again as we kick off our journey today. And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six, he says, uh, finally, kind of wrapping up the letter, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, remember in the Greek, methodeas, his, his methods, his strategies. He said, because our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. He said, I realize it often looks like that, but beyond the, beyond the people are some other powers. And he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the battle is raging, that you will stand your ground, you will not give way, you will not retreat. And after you have done everything, to stand. And so in this passage, Paul introduces us to what I'm calling the powers of darkness. He, he lists them there. He, he talks about the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. And so today, I want to do what we can to pull back, the, pull back the, the curtain, kind of go behind the curtain and take a look at this, these personal and powerful rulers of the unseen world and what the Bible tells us about them. Now, to get at this today, what I want to do is I want to back it up and I want to look at two previous passages in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that will give us some wins, uh, window into some insight into uh, more into these unseen kind of dark powers. So there in your note sheet is a section called Spiritual Warfare, the Powers of Darkness. And you'll see the two passages. And what I'm doing this week, like last week, is I'm gonna continue to just put these on your note sheets. It's easier to follow. Next week, we'll actually open our own Bibles and start marking them up. But just for, for the sake of time and ease today, uh, I put them there for you. So the first passage is in chapter one and verse 17 to 21. So let's set this up. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you know that it starts with uh, Paul sharing God's epic vision for us as followers of Jesus. How we were chosen before time uh, to, to come to Christ. How we've been forgiven of our sins, adopted into God's family, and chosen to play a special part in God's eternal purpose to bring all of heaven and earth healed and restored under the leadership of King Jesus. 
And so after he, he starts the letter with his epic vision, uh, Paul now shares what he's been praying for these believers who's, who live in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. And so there in your note sheet, you have this prayer, and he says, I keep asking, this is what I'm praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, he may give you as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So he says that, here's what I'm, I've just shared this epic vision that God has for your life and, and, and for all of human history. And what I'm praying is that God will open your eyes. So it's not just theology, it's not just theory, but you'll see the reality of this. You'll see who God is, who you are, how you fit in this plan, this amazing new community, his church, uh, the future that he has planned and so on. So he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you this spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. And he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And he's gonna ask for three specific things, that God would open our eyes to three powerful spiritual realities. Now, for the sake of time today, we're gonna skip the first two and go to the third one, which uh, fits with our purpose. And so he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the, his, uh, his incomparably great power for us who believe. He says, I, I, I'm praying that God would open your eyes to understand as a follower of Jesus the power that's available to you as a follower of Jesus. And now he's gonna define that power he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now we're gonna stop there because Paul is using theological, biblical code language that he assumes that we understand. And so when he uses this language that he raised him from the dead and then he seated him at his right hand. He's actually quoting a psalm, one of the most famous psalms in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy about the coming of Messiah. It's Psalm 110. It's the most famous, it's the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's how important it is. And so in this psalm, Psalm 110, uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is speaking to the Messiah and he's saying, sit here at my right hand until I make all your enemies come and, and bow at your feet. Now, you may remember this, but in a recent series, not the short mini-series we just finished, but the one before that, The Power of the Resurrection, that very early in that series, as we studied the early chapters of the book of Acts, we, we talked about uh, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter one. So you may remember that after Jesus' resurrection, 40 days later, he ascended to the Father. And what we learned is that when he ascended into heaven, he went through a major transition in his life. That when he ascended, that based on his life, his death, his resurrection, his conquering sin and death, that he was crowned king of creation, ruling over all creation. 
by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. So he became the resurrected king over all powers, seen and unseen. That's what Paul is referring to when he says, I want you to know this power that's available to you. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, but not just raised him from the dead, but said, sit here at my right hand, made him king over all creation. And if there's any question, you can see this by how this goes on. He says that he, he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And it says, far above, catch these words, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in the present age, here and now, but also in the coming age, the one to come. Now, as you read those words, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, let me ask you a question. What does that sound like? That sounds like Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world. See, what Paul is saying is just, I am praying that as followers of Jesus, God opens your eyes so you understand what happened when Jesus went to the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, when he sat at the right hand, when he was crowned king over all creation, over all the powers. I want you to understand, as a follower of Jesus, that is the power that you have. Now, to understand this passage, we really ha we have to do something that we often talk about here at Rocky Peak. We need to remove some 21st century filters. We need to take off our 21st century glasses. We need to put on our first century glasses. We need to take off our 21st century worldview, put on the first century biblical worldview. If we wanna understand not only what Paul is saying, but why he is saying it. See, for us, as 21st century Christ followers, when we read a passage like this, that he was, he was uh, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name, we, we just, that, that's just like white noise to us. That sounds like regal, kingly language. It sounds like liturgical language you might, you might read in a, in a book at church. Um, it just sounds like amazing language, but we don't understand really what is being said or why it's being said. And so to, to do that, to understand what is being said and why it's being said, we have to go back to the first century. And specifically, we need to go back to the city of Ephesus. Now, if we were to do that, if we could somehow travel in time and go back and walk the streets of Ephesus, you would be amazed at how different the first century was than now. The first century was a highly religious age. The gods were everywhere and woven into every part of daily life. There was no separation of church and state. There was no separation of church and business. There was no separation of church and family. The gods were woven into every aspect of human existence, 
every day of your life. And on top of that, it wasn't just the worship of pagan gods, but the worship of pagan gods was often combined with the practice of magic, the practice of divination, the practice of astrology, the practice of spirit worship, the practice of visions, kind of a, visions of the unseen realm, uh, the pra- occult practices. In fact, this was, and this was true of all the ancient world, of all the first century Roman Empire, but it was especially true of Ephesus. What we know about Ephesus, both from the papyri that we have d- discovered and from archaeology, is that Ephesus was one of the hotbeds of magic and spiritism and uh, sorcery in the ancient world. And we get a great insight into this uh, in, the book of, uh, in the book of Acts. Now, it's interesting. Before we jump there, uh, one more thing. Uh, what, what we know from history, what we know from the papyri, what we know from archaeology is that the reason magic was so big was because it was believed that by, through the use of magic, you could, un, you could control the unseen realm and you could manipulate the spirits to protect yourself from them, but also to enlist their support to help you succeed in whatever you wanted to do in life. So for example, in Ephesus, we know that they would wear amu- uh, amulets around their their, uh, their wrists or their necks to ward off evil spirits. They were big into uh, um, uh, magic uh, spells uh, and the practice of uh, uh, divination and all to invite spirits into their lives to do everything from protecting them from evil but also to grant them success in everything from uh, athletic events to making someone fall in love with you to, uh, to uh, bringing down your enemy. It was a part of everyday life. Now, to get, to get a feel for this, it's interesting because we get insight into this from the Bible itself. Because in the book of Acts, it was written by Luke, he describes in chapter 19 what happened when the apostle Paul first came to Ephesus to share the good news about Jesus. So here's what we know about Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was either the third or fourth largest. Scholars believe that it, that it had uh, somewhere between a quarter of a million and 400,000 inhabitants, and that's just in the city. It was the most influential uh, hub for the, uh, for the kind of the Eastern Empire in many ways in that whole region of what we call Asia Minor or what we'd call today modern-day Turkey. And so uh, it, was, it was incredibly important. So when Paul came there, uh, he was gonna spend longer in Ephesus because of its strategic value and location than any other city. He's gonna spend there about two and a half years. Now, when Paul comes, Luke says that when Paul first came, that the message that, that uh, many people were coming to Christ, God was working in amazing ways. And one of the reasons it was so amazing was because uh, so many people were coming to Christ was because God was doing extraordinary miracles and exorcisms through the apostle Paul. I mean, there, well, not only was he just kind of doing the normal kind of miracles, but even, we're told that even handkerchiefs 
or work aprons, probably leather work aprons taken from Paul that had touched him and put on the sick or on the demonized, people were healed or set free. And so what happened is, is the rumor mill got going and the name of Jesus was being more and more held in honor. In fact, we're told that there was a, a Jewish priest, a kind of a leading priest in Ephesus, a high-level priest, and uh, he had, his name was Sceva, and he had seven sons, and these sons were practicing um, exorcisms. Now, here's what we know from the ancient papyri, from the archaeology, is that the way this would often work is when you would perform your magic or you would proclaim your spell or make your potion, that, that it was believed that if you had the right names of the right gods, it would give you the key to, to what you wanted to have happen. And so often in these documents, and I've read some of these uh, documents, that, uh, that, that the spell would include maybe 20 to 40 names of different gods or spirits that were being called on to implement your desire. And wh what's interesting is often the names, the, the Jewish names for God, like Yahweh or Adonai were actually part of this whole mix. And so as Paul was working and uh, healing people and freeing people from demonic oppression by the name of Jesus, uh, there were these seven sons of the Jewish priests who decided, you know what, we're gonna throw that powerful name into our repertoire and try that out. And so on one particular occasion, they were trying to cast out a demon of a severely demonized man. And uh, they, they, would, they would do it like this. They would say, we command you in the name of Jesus, uh, the Jesus that Paul preaches. So they wanted to get it right because Jesus was a common name. So the name of Jesus, the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out of this man. And this demon answers through the, through the man. And he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who the blank are you? Right? So at that point, he jumps the seven men. This demonized man jumps the seven men, beats the you-know-what out of them, and strips off their clothing. And they have to run out naked and beaten up uh, in the street. Well, you can imagine this creates a scene, right? And this takes us back to the story we started the day with. A crowd develops, and what happens is this, the fear runs through the city. The ancient world lived in fear of the unseen realm. That's what the magic, that's what the worship was all about, to protect them from evil spirits. And so when this, this powerful display of power happens, fear is going through the city, a crowd begins to gather, and the most amazing thing happens when the crowd gathers. And this takes us back to the story we started the day with. Do you remember the, the story we started the day with about this, this man who is at a gathering where this crowd is there, they're bringing these very expensive documents, a pile is growing, finally fire is lit, it catches mixed reactions in the crowd, some cheering, some horror. That's the story. And Luke tells us the story in chapter 19. And I want you to see, it's fascinating. So in Acts chapter 19, uh, Luke says, when this became known, in other words, the, this incident with the demonized man and the seven sons of Sceva, uh, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, 
they were all seized with fear. This was an amazing display of power, and, and it's just making everyone nervous. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Like, don't try using that name if you don't know what you're doing. And now catch this. This is what's fascinating, and it gives us a window into what it was like to, to live in Ephesus Uh, the magic and power that was there, uh, and what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in Ephesus, coming out of a culture where your life had been intertwined with the worship of gods and magic and spells and amulets and sorcery and so on. And it gives us an insight into what was happening in Ephesus and why this issue, catch this, why the issue of power and authority and Uh, uh, dark powers was so big in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So Luke goes on and he says, many of those who, what? Right. Many of those who believed. Luke says that what happens is that when this demonstration of power happened, there were many who had come to faith in Jesus. They were believers, but catch this. Many of those who believed, they now came and they openly confessed what they'd done. So I want you to catch it. They had come to Jesus. They had given their lives to Jesus, but on the side and behind closed doors, they were still practicing their magic arts. Now, this makes sense in a way, right? Because sometimes we come to Jesus, what we want to do is we want to we take Jesus, but we want to add in some of the kind of old religious beliefs, perspectives that we've had before and kind of create a new thing. And this is what they were doing. And it makes sense, right? Because they had lived their life in fear of the dark powers. They had come to Jesus. They would given their life to Jesus. But they're not so sure they're ready to give up their old defenses. Hey, if I stop practicing these, this sorcery, if I stop using these spells, will I be successful in life? Will Jesus be able to protect me? I need to hedge my bets. And so they had come to Jesus, they're going to church, but they're still practicing the evil arts. But when this happens, their eyes are open and they realize that King Jesus is more powerful than the dark side and they don't need to be afraid. And so they're able to come out and openly confess their sin of involvement with the occult and to leave it behind. But it gets more interesting. And he says, so a number, and he goes on, a number who had practiced what? Yes, sorcery. Right, so not only were some of these still participating in their magic or whatever it was, but he says, some of those who who had practiced sorcery, they brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. This is a scene I was describing in the opening story. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, now catch this, scrolls were extremely valuable. Like I've seen estimates that a scroll of, of, say, Paul's letter to the Ephesians could be worth as much as $2,000. Scrolls in the ancient world, very expensive. And it says 
that when they calculated the value of the scrolls, you just see some accountant over there, oh my goodness, get my calculator out. Uh, when they, they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now you're saying, well, how much is that in terms of like frappuccinos, right? So a drachma was a silver coin that was what you would pay a day laborer for a day's worth of work. So just to create some context, like here in LA, the minimum wage is $13 an hour. If you multiply that by eight hours and then you take it by 50,000 days, it comes up to five million dollars. And so this was a huge burning. And what happened is their eyes began to be open. Oh my gosh, I've bought into Jesus. I didn't realize who he was, how powerful he was. I don't need to mess with this anymore. I don't need to be afraid of the unseen powers of darkness if King Jesus is in my life. And because of that new insight, their eyes are open, they're able to make a clean break with the dark side. They don't need, they don't need protection. They don't need the, the power. They, they have Jesus, and if they have Jesus, who is the ruler over all the dark side, that they uh, have what they need. So that's the first passage. It's a passage that gives us insight, we'll come back to it more later, into uh, the unseen realm and what happened when Jesus not only rose from the dead, but ascended to the Father, sat down at the right hand of God as the ruler over all creation. Now, the second passage will go much faster, but once again, it gives us a uh, a great insight into the biblical worldview. Helps us to break down our 21st century worldview. And so uh, the passage is Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. And, uh, and so I need to set it up. It's a, it's a much shorter passage. But what's happened is at the end of chapter 2, uh, Paul has shared more about God's epic vision for all creation. And what he shared is that from the beginning of time, from eternity past, that God has always had a clear vision. And that vision is to one day create a new people, a new humanity that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles to break down that dividing wall that was separated, was necessary for the short run, for the Messiah to come. But once he's come, no longer necessary. We're gonna break it down. We're gonna create one new people right, that are going to rule with him forever. But what he says is though this was God's eternal plan, it's been his plan from day one, he says that, that, this plan, that God had not revealed this plan in the Old Testament, that it, he, it, he didn't really reveal it, it was like a secret. And he didn't really reveal it until Messiah came and now he's revealing it through his apostles. And so We've got this amazing thing. God has this epic plan. Uh, it's been held secret. Now it's being revealed through Christ and the apostles. And so that's the context for this short statement that we're going to read. And so in Ephesians 3, he says his intent, in other words, God's intent, was that now through the church, the new community of the king, the manifold, manifold wisdom of God, like his many, his multifaceted, amazing wisdom, should be made known. Now let's stop there. 
God has an epic vision to create this new community. It was held secret in the past, but now it's being revealed. And he says, so now through the church, that message, that vision is going to be made known. Now the question is, to whom is it going to be made known? Like if we were to stop there, erase the rest of the verse, and I were to ask you that question, I think your response, my response, with our 21st century mindset is, well, this, the church is going to make this message known to the whole world. And of course, that's true. But that is not what Paul says. Look what he says. He says it should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, it's been his plan from day one, that he accomplished in Christ our Lord. And what I want you to catch is how strange this sounds to us as 21st century Western world Christ followers. It's like this secret has been now revealed and is being made known through the church so that through our lives that this message can be known to the unseen realm? That's crazy. But it gives you insight into the biblical worldview and the reality of this unseen realm. So here's what I want you to catch. Last week, we saw it with Jesus. This week, we're seeing it through the Apostle Paul, that for Jesus, for the Apostle Paul, this unseen realm is not only real, it is extremely important and it's impossible to understand the life and ministry of Jesus or the teaching, the writings of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, apart from our understanding the reality of what I'm calling today the unseen realm, the dark powers. So, from these three passages, right? Ephesians 6, put on the full armor. Ephesians 1, pray that our eyes will be open to, to the reality of what Jesus has done. And Ephesians 3 that we just read, I wanna ask you two important questions for your life that are incredibly important, not only for today, but as we enter into this series, right? So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called spiritual warfare, two key questions. So here's the first question. The first question is, do you believe in the unseen realm? Do you believe in the unseen realm? Now what we've seen so far in this series is for Jesus, for Paul, the unseen realm, it not only is real, but it defines in many ways their ministry. Like it's impossible to understand their lives and ministry apart from the reality of this unseen realm. And so the question is, do you believe in the reality of this unseen realm that Jesus and Paul are describing for us? Now, on one level, if you are a follower of Jesus and therefore you believe in the authority of his word and what Jesus and Paul are telling us, at one level, I think this may seem to be a very easy and obvious answer. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in the authority of his word. He says it, I believe it. Yes, I believe at that level. But I wanna challenge you. I, I'm not just asking, do you believe this in a theological 
or a theoretical way. What I'm asking is, do you believe in the reality of the unseen realm in such a way it impacts the way you approach your life every day, the way you look at life, your perspective on life, your paradigms of life, the choices you make, the priorities that you choose? Do you believe in the reality of the unseen realm in such a way it impacts your life on a daily basis. And the reason I'm asking is that I believe for most of us who have grown up here uh, or with a Western worldview, that, and, this, and I would include myself, is that often we believe this in a theological or theoretical way, but not necessarily in an everyday life sort of way. You know, one of my favorite writers on the topic of spiritual warfare is actually, as far as I know, he's, he's still the dean of students at Talbot Theological Seminary here in the L.A. area. And uh, prior to that, he was the head of the New Testament Studies Department. He's an excellent scholar, a great writer. Uh, and so his name is Dr. Clinton E. Arnold. And uh, what I, I love about Dr. Arnold is that he, he, writes, he writes about this topic of spiritual warfare, not only at a popular level, but also at a scholarly level. In fact, he did his doctoral di dissertation on power and magic in the city of Ephesus in the first century uh, for the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And so once I discovered that, I recently read that uh, dissertation that's now been turned into a book, and it's extremely helpful for understanding the context of the book of Ephesians. But he's also written uh, on a popular level, and one of those books that I would highly recommend if you want to delve into this area of spiritual warfare is called Three Crucial Questions on Spiritual Warfare. And there in your note sheet, I put a quote, and look what he says. He says, the Bible from beginning to end highlights this theme of conflict with the powers of evil. It is integral or central to the biblical worldview. Now, those of us who see the Bible as our authoritative and reliable guide to faith and practice, we need to take this aspect of the biblical message seriously. And catch this. Here's what I want you to catch. The biblical worldview, however, collides head-on with the modern worldview, what I'm calling the naturalistic worldview, and its naturalistic assumptions. Catch this, as followers of Jesus, we often do not realize the extent to which naturalistic assumptions have permeating our, permeated our thinking. And I think for, for me, I know it's true for me, that we, we, we've grown up here, we've grown up in a world where we're constantly hearing this message that, that the world is, the world, all creation, our lives is a result of billions of years of accidental collisions and that therefore there is no meaning, uh, there is no ultimate moral values, uh, there, there is no ultimate right and wrong. Uh, we we kind of make it up as we go and there is no God, there is no uh, dark side exists. 
And though as, though as followers of Jesus, we'd often push back on this, and say, no, that's not what we believe. This is what we believe. I, I believe it's so much in the water, it often impacts the way we see our life, and especially life in the unseen realm. So what, what, I, what I'm sh- suggesting is if you grew up, let's say, in, uh, uh, somewhere in Africa, if you grew up in Haiti, if you grew up in Latin America, chances are that you've seen much more obvious evidence of the activity of the unseen realm. And so when you read passages about spiritual warfare, when you read passages about the authorities and the powers, that just makes sense to you because this is part of your life. You've grown up in a culture where participation in magic and the occult and the spirit world and spirit guides and curses and hexes and uh, uh, astrology and it's just part of life, right? And so when you came to Jesus, you, you realize that, oh, that's the dark side. That is a deception. You've stepped out of that. You're very aware of that. But I believe for many of us here uh, in, uh, that have grown up in kind of a Western world mind, so that's not the case. It's interesting, you know, this week uh, I received an email from a woman here at Rocky Peak. She gave me permission to use this. But uh, she, uh, she said, I'm so, she was so excited that we're teaching on spiritual warfare. She said that I'm from Guatemala. And she said, what I found is that after I've moved here to the States, I, a lot of churches don't teach on this. And I'm so excited you're teaching on this. And so I wrote her back and I said, yeah, my hunch is that you've seen a lot of this uh, 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 in kind of where you've come from. And her response was, absolutely. So I come from a ministry family and where I come from, deliverance ministry from the dark side is a big part of what we do. But what I believe is that here in, in the in, in, uh, kind of Western world, whether it's in Europe or whether it's here in the States, whatever, that in the Western world mindset, the enemy has taken a totally different tactic. You see, if you, you can get a whole culture to believe that all of life, all of creation, including you and me, that we are all the result of billions of years of random collisions. Uh, there is no God. There is no dark side. There is no right. There is no wrong. There's no ultimate truth. There's no ultimate morality. You can tear that culture apart, and you see it happening in our culture in an amazing way right here and right now. And so in a culture like that, I believe the enemy often does not reveal his hand because if you don't believe he exists, he's free to do whatever he wants. But even here in our culture over the last 30 years, as our culture has embraced more of the new age movement, spiritism and so on, uh, astral projection, tarot cards, Ouija board, the whole thing, as we've delved into the occult, we're seeing more and more of the obvious evidence of the dark side in our culture. In fact, we see it often here at Rocky Peak. Many of you would be surprised at how normal it is for us to get an email, to get a call from someone that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I, 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 I'm not even sure I should be telling you this, but I'm experiencing weird, supernatural things in my life. I think they might be spiritual attack. And they go on to describe uh, seeing spirits in their house. They go on to describe 
uh, being attacked in the night, often sexually. They go on to describe uh, being choked in their sleep. They're afraid they can't breathe. They're going to die. And often they are slow to come and share these stories for fear we will think they are crazy. But the reality is that is seldom the case. That usually these are sane, credible, reliable people that for whatever reason, maybe there was a, a, a window to the dark side they opened from their past. Maybe it was something that was done to them. There was some, there's, there's some other influence, but somehow a window has been opened. The enemy is taking advantage. And catch this, when we meet with them to help them find freedom in Christ, what we try to help them understand right away is that as a follower of Jesus, connected to King Jesus, who rules over all creation, they have the power and the access as a follower of Jesus to take authority over the dark side. And so what we see here is that the dark side is very real. And my question for you is, do you believe, really believe, not just theoretically, not just theologically, but do you believe in the reality of the unseen realm? And one of my prayers, and it's a prayer for me, it's a prayer for you, is that as we go through this series, that God would answer the prayer of the Apostle Paul, that he would open the eyes of our heart that we would understand what happened when Jesus died and rose again and was seated at the right hand of God far above every name that is named and that we would understand the power that is available to us as followers of Jesus to take our stand against the evil one. Now, the second question that I have for you is do you understand what Jesus has done? So the Apostle Paul is alluding to this in Ephesians 1 in that opening prayer when he talks about Jesus rising from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, far above every name. He's alluding to what happened at the cross of Christ and this change of transition and this power over the darks, like what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But in the book of Colossians, which was written about the same time as Ephesians, uh, has a lot of similar content, it was written to another city about 120 miles inland from Ephesus in the area of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul talks specifically about this, like what happened at the cross? What, what did Jesus do? Like how did life change because of the cross? Uh, and so in Colossians 2, he talks about this, and he says there in your note sheet, he says, when you were dead in your sin, so before we come to Jesus, we'll see this more next week, we're spiritually dead. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your lower nature, uh, God made you alive with Christ. Can he supernaturally raise you from the dead through Jesus' resurrection? And he says, and, and so here's what he did. He said, he forgave us all our sins uh, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So he says that before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead, 
but he says that when you came to Christ, that God breathed the life, the resurrection life, that you were risen with Christ, you came alive, and that he forgave your sins. And he describes it as a legal charge of indebtedness, right? So like if you go before a judge and you've committed a crime, that there's a legal charge against you and there's a legal sentence that's going to happen as a result of that charge. But he says that, that when God made you alive, he forgave that charge. He removed the charge. Now the question is, how did he remove that charge? charge that was rightfully against you for your rebellion against your creator. And so he goes on and he says that he removed, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now here's the thing. When Rome would crucify someone, they would typically put a little placard above their head uh, with their charges, the, the charges against them. This is the crime they committed. So the message was, don't rebel against Rome. If you do, this will happen. This is specifically what this person did to warrant this punishment. This is the charge. Now, here's the thing. You may remember this, that when Jesus was crucified, they put that placard above his head, and the charge was king of the Jews. This is why Jesus was crucified by Pilate for claiming to be a king, for, for committing high treason against Rome. So Paul says that the way this works is that when Jesus died, the crimes you've committed, the legal charge of indebtedness for your life, every sin you've ever committed will commit, the legal charge for your life that called for your condemnation, that that placard was nailed to the cross above his head, and he died for that charge. And when he died, it canceled out all charges against you. Now, as a result of that, Satan and his powers no longer have a legal right to hold you in their kingdom under their power. Because the reason they had that right was because of your rebellion. When Jesus died for that charge, then you were set free. You were now could be transferred kingdoms. Now let me, let me just do a quick sidebar here. I wanna keep moving because we're running out of time, but quick sidebar. I want you to catch this. For some of you, you question God's love for your life. For some of you, there are certain crimes, charges against you, that things that you've done in your life that you're so ashamed of. There are certain things you've done or thought or have been done to you that make you wonder if God really loves you if he could really forgive you. I know he can forgive most people, but I don't think he can forgive this. And as a result, Satan has a window into your life to lie to you and rob you of your rights as a son or daughter of the king. The reality is it doesn't matter what you've done or what has been done for you. 
whatever you have done was part of that charge that went above his cross. And when he died, that charge against you was canceled. And Satan has no more authority to hold you in his kingdom because the king has died for, your, for the charges held together. Your legal indebtedness is over. Now he goes on and he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, notice that language, powers and authorities, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the question is, what's he talking about? This whole public spectacle, this disarming, uh, this triumphing over through the cross. Well, Paul is using a powerful metaphor that would have been super clear to them in Colossae in the first century, not so clear to us. So let me give you a little background. In the Roman world, when a, a top general over an army, when he would complete a successful military campaign, uh, a long series of wars, for example, pacifying a new area, not, not just like a single battle, but a major long campaign, that often the Roman Senate would vote him the honor of what they called a triumph. And a triumph was essentially a long parade through the city of Rome. Sometimes it lasts for days. And so you would have uh, the army men, the, 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 the soldiers marching through the city, singing their war songs and their, their body songs. You would be, you, you, uh, behind them, there would be floats. And these floats would have huge murals depicting key battle scenes from this recent uh, campaign. Uh, behind them, often the, uh, the, the, the general, the commanding general would be riding on a chariot, maybe drawn by many white horses. His face would be painted red, imitating Jupiter or Zeus. He was like God for a day. But behind him would come the captives, the kings, the generals, the top officials of the land who had been defeated in battle. And they would be paraded through the city streets to publicly humiliate them. He had already disarmed them of their powers and now as his slaves, he would publicly humiliate them in a triumph through the streets of Rome. And when they would finally get them to the arena uh, or to the slave market, they would either execute them there at a public execution or sell them into slavery. And Paul is using that powerful image. And he said, when Jesus went to the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He took away their rights over your life and mine. He publicly humiliated them. And he's leading, and, and we are the ones that humiliate him now as part of his triumph over their lives. And so this is what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 1, that God would open our eyes to see who Jesus is, the resurrected king, and to understand that as his followers, we have been set free from the kingdom of darkness, that the charges against us have been canceled, and that as followers of Jesus, we're connected with him through the Holy Spirit, and we have access to his supernatural power. And this is why in Ephesians 6, he can say 
to be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power, in the power of the resurrected king who rules over the powers of darkness. And so as we continue in the early days of this series, I just have two questions for you. And the first question is you. The first question is, do you believe in the unseen realm? And will you join me that we would pray together for all of us that during this series, that God would open our eyes to the reality of the unseen realm and the power that is available to us in Christ. And the second question is, do you understand what Jesus has done, that the charges against you are dropped, the enemy has no right over you. As followers of Jesus, it's time for us to rise up to claim our rightful authority and move into the future that he's designed for us, to join him in his mission to bring all of heaven and earth healed and restored under his leadership. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the life and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus, for his ascension to the right hand of God, that he now rules over all, uh, every authority and ruler and power of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So God, we pray that you would open our eyes to who he is to who we are, to the power that's available, and that you would begin to teach us how to take our stand and to join you in this mission of bringing all of heaven and earth healed and restored under the leadership of the resurrected king. We pray this in Christ's name, and everyone said, amen.